like for the rest of you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 7. We're going to begin at verse 14. When I started out the day, I had a pair of glasses up here. Now I don't know where they are. Ryan, could you hold my Bible, please? (laughs) Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 14. Now, as we come to this passage of Scripture, I want to tell you that there's a lot of controversy about when this occurred in Paul's life. Actually, there's probably some debate even as to whether this occurred in Paul's life, but it's such a personal testimony, uh, I think it's pretty clear that it did. But some people say Paul is dealing with the law in chapter 7, which is true. But because he's dealing with the law, he's dealing with it from the viewpoint of a Jew living under the law, and the struggle that he had before Christ. And so they want to locate this experience that he describes in verses 14 and following at a time earlier in his Christian life, earlier in his life before he came to know Christ that would uh, depict maybe the frustration that a Jew living under the law would have. Others say that it was his experience after coming to know Christ, that he is describing the dualistic struggle and challenge that a Christian has who now wants to serve God but finds this old law of sin and death operating uh, to bring one down. And there are still others who would say, This describes the battle that Christians fight and face all the rest of their lives. That this tension that Paul describes in these verses is kind of the lifelong experience of a child of God who has been awakened to the things of heaven but still lives in the midst of the earth and the tension that exists between those two elements. Let's read it together and see if we can discern when it is that Paul is talking about. Now you remember from last week that as we came to the end of the section, uh, Paul said that there was not a problem with the law. In fact, he said in verse uh, 12, the law is holy, the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. Uh, Those are not synonyms, necessarily. They are three different aspects of the law. It is holy, because it is of God. It is righteous, because it is completely and judicially just. And it is good, because its intent is beneficent. It's for our benefit. If you follow the law, things will go well with you. And that was part of God's promise to the Israelites. So he says in verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. 
For that which I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do. But I am doing the very thing I hate. If I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not wish. If I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Now, as the various uh, biblical scholars approach this passage, uh, you can imagine them in their studies with the various language tools arrayed around them and some of the greatest commentators of history open before them and bringing all their skills to bear on the analysis of this passage. And I suppose under those circumstances it would be very easy to get lost in a logical and phil philosophical discussion of this problem. But let's take it out of the realm of the academic office and put it in the realm of your life for a moment. And, and it is okay to raise your hand for this one because I don't think you're going to be singled out in any sense of the word. Most of you in this room are believers. Most of you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Most of you really want to, to please God and you want to do uh, the things that are, are pleasing to Him. You want your life to count for Christ, and you want to live for Him. How many of you have experienced Paul's dilemma here? I do the things I don't want to do, and I can't seem to do the things I want to do. Could I see your hands, please? Okay, so do you think Paul was writing about Christians or non-Christians? He's, he's writing about Christians, isn't he? He could be writing about non-Christians too, but he's writing about anyone who is trying to keep the law and explaining the struggle and the frustration. And he's describing the Christian life of many, many people. That they try their best and they constantly fall short. That they're, that they're pressing toward this goal of looking and acting like Jesus but they're always being frustrated in the struggle. Now, there's another group of people out there that look at this passage and they say, well, this is normal. This is the Christian life. We have been saved. We've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. We've been given a new nature. We, we have all kinds of marvelous things that have happened to us that, that have drawn us into fellowship and relationship with God. We've confessed our sin and we've trusted Christ as our Savior and we have a new attitude. But we're still in the flesh 
And as long as we live this life, we're going to be now in this tension. We're going to be struggling and caught between this, this constant bind of wanting to please God on the, uh, with, with the deepest part of our being, and yet on the other hand, always coming short. We're never, ever going to lick sin in this life. We're going to be constantly drugged down. And so they say this is the Christian life. This is the Christian experience, that, that we're living in this dualism that is going to be a battleground until the day we depart this planet. I have a question for you, another question. How many of you, when you came to Jesus Christ, knowing that you were a sinner, you heard a gospel message that said something like this, Jesus Christ will forgive you of your sin. He will cleanse you from all of your past. He will come into your life and change you, and he will give you eternal life and the hope of heaven and that assurance. And, uh, and you came to Christ. How many of you, at that point in your life, thought you were signing up to be miserable the rest of your days as you fought this horrible battle between the spirit and the flesh. Did, did anybody sign up for that? What is this business about, I will give you life in all of its fullness? I will give you my joy with abundance running over. I will give you peace that goes beyond comprehension. I will fill your life with blessing and gladness. What, what's that all about? Does Paul sound like he's happy in the last part of Romans 7? Or is he fighting a battle? He sounds to me like he's having a tough time. There's war going on here, and he's not at peace. He says, I I'm always doing the thing I don't want to do. And I can't seem to find the... The, the strength, the energy, the power to do the things I wish I could do. And, and he comes to the end and he says, wretched man that I am. That sounds like somebody having joy unspeakable and full of glory. Or somebody that is just worn out. Who's going to get me out of this mess? Man, I need some help here. Well, I think one of the most important things in understanding Romans 7 and where it fits in, in, in Paul's life and in the life of believers everywhere and why he put it where he did in this passage is for us to go back and remember, first of all, context, context, context. <laughs> you have to know where it fits. And Romans 7, I say this somewhat tongue-in-cheek, you've heard me say it before, but I, I really mean it. Romans 7 comes right between Romans 6 and Romans 8. That's the first context. It's right in the middle between 6 and 8. It also falls there in our Christian life. What happened in Romans chapter 6? If you go back and you look at uh, verse 12, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lust. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin will not be master over you. You're not under law, but under grace. And I encouraged you when we were considering those verses to make a, a total sellout commitment to Jesus Christ. I explained to you that this was an altar kind of commitment. Not, not coming to the front of the room, but going to the tabernacle, to the place of sacrifice, 
and allowing the priest to sacrifice you on the altar. I mean, this was, this was a sellout. <clears throat> this was coming to God and saying, I take my hands off. I devote myself to you without reservation. I am completely committed to you, Lord Jesus. And you can have my body, you can have all of its instruments, you can have my eyes and ears and mouth and hands and feet and mind and heart and soul. You can have everything. I want you to take complete control of me. I yield my right to run my own life. You are totally in charge. I want you to possess me fully. And many of you made that choice. And if you didn't make it when we were going through Romans, you made it at some other point in your life, and you made it at some other time. And I explained to you then how the Holy Spirit of God, as you devoted yourself completely to Him, already indwelling you, is now free to, to permeate you, to possess you, to and possess in the good sense of the word. He, he is free to fill you up to overflowing with Himself, and to take control of all those areas that you've just surrendered. And I said to you that he doesn't do that all at once. He will fill you. But when he actually comes down to the nitty-gritty of taking over each area of your life, he typically moves one place at a time. And he starts out by picking an area of your life where he wants to now take control. You've invited him in. You've, you've asked him to be... Uh, the, the, the one who fills your being with his presence, and he says, okay, I want to go into the basement of your life, and I want to clean it up and fill it. And he begins to take over those rooms. And then I told you that there were two habits that needed to be broken. And one of those habits was the habit of trying to live under the law. Remember me saying that those people who study these kinds of things say it takes about four weeks, 28 days of unbroken success to break a habit. So if you have a bad habit that you want to break, whatever it happens to be, you can count on about a month of daily success, no relapses, no fallbacks, a month of freedom in order to get that thing eradicated from your life. That's just plain old human ability. How do you break a habit? We have been under a habit for a long time. And the habit is whenever we feel a sense of conviction or a sense of moral obligation or a sense of moral duty, we're under the habit of trying to be good according to the, to the requirement, according to the legislation. We read the scripture. The scripture says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. And you say, I like that. I'm going to adopt that for, for my motto this week. I'm going to try to keep a lid on it. I'm going to try to hold my tongue this week. James says, no man can tame the tongue. <laughs> You've got to read the whole book, see, to get some of this stuff. If you read that in Ephesians, keep reading. As James says, no one can, can control the tongue. It's a world of iniquity. It, it sets on course a whole forest, it, and it's set on course itself by hell. Uh, the, those, your tongue is an unruly member. You say, well, what's the hope? Well, the Holy Spirit can control the tongue, but you can't. But you, you, you engage. You say, I'm going to do my best here. You read the scripture and it says, be patient with all men. You say, okay, I'm going to, 
I'm going to try this week to be patient. This is a good time of year to try to be patient, by the way. You know, I, I stopped by Circuit City on Friday. <laughs> it wasn't real early. It was a little later in the day, but it was still kind of comical. And what I failed to realize was most of the crowds were gone. Well, it was still a pretty full store, but most of the crowds were gone. But I failed to realize that the the store clerks and cashiers and whatever had been there since like 3 o'clock. And I'm in line, you know, and, and this this poor guy is having a tough time. And people want things that they just can't get. And, and, and there's all this struggle going on, you know. And uh, I waited a very long time. And I continued to wait. And it, it took this one person up near the front of the line. It took them about 15, 20 minutes to get their problem solved. And then the next person gets in line, and, you know, and, and we're standing there. And so far, we've got a pretty jovial nature. But I hear this poor guy say, all I want to do is just get out of here. I'm just done. I just want out of here. <laughs> I'm thinking, and I'm waiting for him to wait on me. <laughs> I'm in trouble, you know. Well, this is a great time of year to try to develop some patience. I do not recommend long lines at the malls as the place to start. But you know what happens when you try to develop patience. You get in trouble, you know. You get in trouble. The more you and I try to keep the rules of good Christian living the more frustrated we become. And, and I want to let you in on a secret. God could not be happier than when you're trying and failing at the rules. You say, that doesn't make sense to me. But my friends, one of the things that God must do to break the habit that we have of trying to attain Christ-like behavior by reading and applying and following the requirements is to let us experience failure at such a deep level that we stop relying on the flesh, which is our other habit. We rely on the law for godliness, and we rely on the flesh for the energy to produce it. And it is destined to fail 100% of the time. Now, some people say, <clears throat> you know, I've got my life pretty well together. I'm able to, to handle a lot of things that the law says. The law, the law says, um, don't lie. And I, I I'm, keep my word. I'm a man of my word. I keep that. You know, my dad was known for that. He was known as a man of integrity. He was known, he was known, and he worked for the railroad, and he was known among his colleagues as a man you could count on Leonard Martin's word. You could absolutely count on it. I remember being a little perplexed. I wasn't quite old enough to, to think in great depth, but I was old enough to, to realize that sometimes my dad would say something that wasn't exactly true. Like, for example, how much he enjoyed the meal that my grandmother prepared. And then on the way home, uh, he would comment on how there was a certain dish that he just couldn't stand. And it confused me as a child. And then, then I got the lesson in the benefit of white lies that were intended, you know, to, uh, 
to, 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 to be sociable. That was a little bit confusing to me, but, but even at that, my dad really was a man who had a, a great record as a man who kept his word. He also had a temper, and if you pushed him beyond a certain limit, <laughs> there were other consequences. He could get quite angry. Some people managed to keep one aspect of the law in tow and lose in another. Some people managed to be patient but they are prone to lying. Some people manage to keep the lying and the patience together, but, but their weakness is some other area. We all have an Achilles kind of heel. And no matter how well we shore up some aspect, there's going to be some part of our lives that we do not do very well because no one can keep the law in all of its entirety. And even though you can pick out some parts that you're pretty good at, you can't keep the whole thing. And you know, God has an amazing way of starting to work on those areas where we have the most trouble. And he puts his finger on that and he says, I want to fix that. I want to deal with that in your life. And we do the natural thing. We say, okay, I'm going to try harder than ever, Lord, to please you. Isn't that admirable? I'm going to try to do it. And we read this stuff saying we can't, but we don't get it. And so we put forth 100% effort. I'm going to really try here. And we try and we fail. And we try and we fail again. And the more we get into it, the more determined we become. I'm going to win this battle. And we get real intent on, on winning this thing. When all the time God is waiting for us to just roll over on our back and open our arms and say, I give up. I can't do this. It is not possible for me. God is actually waiting for that. How do I know that? Because Paul says that in these verses. Look at verse 17. He says, so now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. By the way, if you're following the outline, please don't, because I'm not. And you'll get very confused. But it will make you, the outline will make sense, and my sermon will make sense, and, and they can kind of complement each other. But it just didn't work out that way first time around this morning. So he says, No longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. Christians are not schizophrenic. It's not like we have two personalities. But what we learn is we are infused with the Holy Spirit, He is living inside of us. We are new people in Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you something this morning for absolute positive. The person in you that says, I love the Lord, I love His Word, I want to please the Lord, my heart desires to follow Him. If you're a born-again child of God, that is the real you. That is who you are. That is your new self in Jesus Christ that has been born again in Him and raised to walk in newness of life. It's not that, that you're two personalities. That is you. But what it is, is that there is a, an old nature that is corrupt and defiled and broken that died in Jesus Christ. In the sense that Christ made it possible for that old nature not to have influence or power. 
Because the problem with the old nature was not the law, but it was the law of sin and death. And so Paul says it sounds kind of schizophrenic, but it's not. He says, so now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. That old nature of mine that is lost in sin is still the old nature. Mark this down. Jesus Christ does not intend to improve, rehabilitate, patch up, or repair the old nature. It's hopeless. It cannot be fixed. The only solution is death, and that happened in Christ on the cross. But if we rely on the old nature, it will still kick into action with the same predictable results that we cannot obey the law. So when Paul says, I want to do this, and I can't, so I'm no longer the one doing it, he says, the real me, the born-again me, wants to please God. And so if I can't please God, there must be something else going on, because that's my heart, and there is something else going on. He's relying on the old man. And that old guy is hopeless. So he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. In other words, he says, my wanter is good, but my doer is broken. You know, my wanter is good, but my doer is broken. It, it, it doesn't work. And he comes to this profound conclusion. And friends, it is a profound conclusion. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells nothing good. Why did I say a moment ago that the Holy Spirit could not be happier when we fail in self-effort? Because we must learn this lesson if we are to stop relying on the flesh. We must learn the lesson that nothing good dwells in me. Now, let me hasten to say, I am not telling you or me that we are no good. And there's a huge difference. You have immense value. God loves you. God loves you. That, that in and of itself is of immense value. That's the first thing. Secondly, you're made in his image. You are made in his image. You are made to live forever. Everything else is going to burn up. Peter says the elements are going to burn with a fervent heat. One day, every planet the whole solar system is going to dissipate into nothingness. Whatever that's going to look like, I have no idea. But you are not. You are going to live forever. You were made with eternity in mind. God loves you. And you have great value. And if you ever doubt your value, all you have to do is look at Jesus on the cross. God is saying with Jesus on the cross, that's what you're worth to me. So I'm not saying you're no good. 
But I am saying that you have no moral good in your life, that you are utterly corrupt, that there is nothing in you that can respond affirmatively to the law. We're broken even when we think we're successful. When you've really licked a problem, when you've really conquered some issue in your life, when you've really got it nailed and you did it, what, what, what is the first thing you think? Man, look how, look how, I did it. I did it. I did it my way. <clears throat> Yike. We fail even when we succeed because we get all full of pride and a sense of self-aggrandizement that we've done something marvelous. Isaiah puts it this way. He says, "All of, this is God speaking through Isaiah, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. Now, when Isaiah says that, to our minds, we were doing some house cleaning over the Thanksgiving holidays, and we soiled quite a number of cleaning cloths, and so we amassed a pile of filthy rags. They kind of smelled like dust and dirt and pledge and Windex. And that's not what Isaiah had in mind. Before there were disposable feminine hygiene products, they used rags, which they washed out. That's what Isaiah had in mind. Now, the second thing about that sentence that's remarkable is he doesn't say all your sin is as filthy rags. He says all your righteousness is as filthy rags. The best you can produce is a putrid pile of stenchy rags. That's your golden hour in the nostrils of God. We're not talking about your sin. We're talking about your sterling moments, your conquering achievements, your finest hour, morally, is a pile of filthy rags. That's the best. We're not even going to the rest. The sin is somewhere in the sewer. This is your finest. Paul says, my struggle with sin in the flesh has brought me to the conclusion that there's nothing good in me. And I want to tell you something, dear ones, that is a hard lesson to learn. Because we really believe for a very long time that somewhere in our lives there is something commendable, there's something of value in the moral sense. We can pull it off somehow. We can make some good contribution. We can do something well. But God measures success not in temporal moments, not how well you led the March of Dimes campaign and how much good you did for the community. It's, will it last eternally? When the elements have melted with fervent heat and all is said and done and, and, and the, the sum total of our lives have been 
offered at the judgment seat of Christ for evaluation. What will survive the fires of that trial? And the scripture says everything you produce in the flesh, even the good stuff, is, is hay, wood, and stubble, and it will be consumed. But when you produce gold and silver and precious stone in your life, you know that it's God doing it, because those are precious commodities that God has placed in this earth that we cannot create and we cannot destroy ultimately. The gold and the silver and the precious stone that survive the trials of the judgment seat of Christ are the deeds of our lives that have been done by the Holy Spirit through us. We cannot produce eternal results of eternal significance on our own. Forget even the law-keeping for a moment. Let's just talk about doing good. We can't do that ourselves. It's not possible. And we must be convinced before we will stop relying on the old nature. We must be convinced that there's no help there. And the only way we're going to be convinced is if the Holy Spirit contests an area of our lives that he wants to control, and we set out in all good interest to work with him, but we want to show him how well we can handle this. And he waits for us to fall helpless in the dust and cry uncle and say, I can't do this. I cannot be patient. I have tried and I have tried and I have tried, and I can't do it. I am not a patient person. And God says, no, you're not. But I am. Will you just let me do it in you? I've tried, and I've tried, and I've tried. I can't hold my tongue. I just, I, whatever I think just comes out my mouth, no matter how hurtful. God, I can't put a lid on it. No, you can't. But I don't say things that are inappropriate. So could I talk through you, please? He's waiting for us to come to the end of the rope. There are many illustrations of this in Scripture. Jacob, you remember in the Old Testament, fled his father's house because he had swindled his brother out of the birthright, made a mess of things, Esau was so angry with him, he was going to kill him. And Jacob ran off and ended up uh, in another land with some relatives. And he kind of met his match. He sort of found out where the gene pool for swindling was when he met his father-in-law, the bee. But he ended up serving there for some 20-something years. He ended up with two wives and two concubines and a bunch of kids. <coughs> And he finally got, got to the place where he was ready to leave and could leave and, and decided it was time to go back home. And so now, if you can imagine Jacob, he's between a rock and a hard place. He's made a mess at home, and he left two decades before with his brother threatening murder. And he goes to this other place, and he meets this guy who turns out to be his father-in-law as the story unfolds. 
and he leaves in the middle of the night trying to escape from him. So he can't go back, and he's trying to go home, and he's kind of stuck in the middle. And he's on his way back to Abraham, not to, but to Isaac's household. He's on his way back, and as he's heading back, he's got his wives, he's got his children, he's got his servants, he's got all of his herds and everything. And he gets word that Esau is coming to meet him with four hundred armed soldiers. Uh oh. And Jacob is in trouble, you know, and he knows it. And he doesn't know what Esau's intents are. And Jacob, uh, you know, has what some folks have called a come-to-Jesus meeting. Here's the time where you've got to get real. And it, this is Jacob's time. And I don't necessarily think he was hoping that, that Esau would kill off everybody first. I really think he was hoping by sending his wives and children on ahead that Esau's heart would be softened. I think that was the goal. But he sends everybody ahead of him, and he stays back by the brook Peniel, and he's going to have a prayer meeting. He's going to cry out to God. He is in trouble, and he knows, I can't get out of this one. And during that prayer time, he ends up wrestling with this angel of the Lord, as it turns out. And in that wrestling match, Jacob grabs hold of this angel, and he says, I mean, he, he, he looks like a man, acts like a man. He grabs hold of him, and and the angel of the Lord says, let me go. And Jacob says, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. I've got to have an answer here. And they fight all night. And Jacob won't let go. And toward the wee hours of the morning, you know, the angel of the Lord is ready to leave. And Jacob says, I'm not letting go until I get a blessing. And he says, okay, and he touches his hip socket, his thigh, and puts his hip out of joint and damages the socket. And Jacob is crippled, and he cries out and falls down, basically. And the angel of the Lord says, You have wrestled with God and with men, and you've won. <laughs> Jacob's kind of thinking, how is this? I, I can't move my leg right now. How do you mean I've won? He says, your name has been Jacob, swindler, heel grabber, conniver, liar, dirty dealer. That's been your life story. But as of tonight, your name is going to change. You are now Israel, prince with God. You're a prince with God. Jacob leaves the brook Peniel crippled, and he walks with a limp the rest of his life. But he has a new name. In his utter defeat, he found victory, and a name that meant Prince with God. And the swindler, heel grabber, conniver, liar, thief is basically gone from his life, not entirely, because that's still the Old Testament. But, but there's a new lesson, and he has to lean on God. And there is a message for us there, friends. We win when we are broken. We win when we come to the end of ourselves. 
We win when we recognize with Paul in Romans 7, there is nothing good in me. And when you've come to that mat with God, and you've come to the end of yourself, and you have reached the final battle, and God has dealt the death blow to your, to your sense of, of, of accomplishment and ability and capacity to actually keep the law, and you leave that encounter broken, you are now a prince, princess with God. You've won. Because from this moment forward, there will be no more trust in your old nature. Somebody comes to you with the law and you say, I can't do that. Somebody comes to you with some, some new uh, goal to aspire to, that uh, here, here's a challenge for you, I can't do that. Enemy comes to you with temptation, I have no patience. I don't. I don't have any. Then what am I to do? If I have no confidence in my flesh, what am I to do? I'm to look to Jesus. I'm to look to Him. Lord, I can't. But you are perfect patience. Please live through me. Lord, I can't. But you always have the right words. Please speak through me. My mouth is yours. My heart is yours. It all belongs to you. I don't have any reliance on me anymore. I know I'm going to fail. I'm putting my confidence in you. I'm trusting you. Will you do this thing through me? And that's what he's waiting for. Paul goes on to say, I joyfully concur, verse 22, with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind. I, I wish our translators hadn't helped us out there. Because the words of my body are not anywhere in the Greek. They're, they don't occur at all. He says, I see a different law working in my members. It's not my body that's my problem. It's the old nature that's, that's working there is my problem. Waging war against the law of my mind, my desire to please God, making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is operating in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Now, that's what makes some people think we're talking about the whole of your life, and when you, when you finally die, then you get free. But that's not what Paul's speaking of. Almost all of the commentators agree that this body of death is not referring to the human body. But you remember Pilgrim's progress, how he carried the load? It's like the body of death is like a load, a weight on us. Watchman Nee talks about that at times in ancient cultures, one of the ways of dealing with a murderer is pretty gross. But if somebody committed murder, they would actually tie the dead body to that person, to their back. They would bind it to their arms and around their waist and their legs, and they would have to haul around the corpse. Imagine that after four or five days in the Middle East. Ugh. You don't want to kill anybody really fat. You want to pick somebody skinny, because you're going to have to carry this person around for a while, you know. And you're bearing this body of death around. And Paul is saying, who will deliver me from this weight? Who will deliver me from this awful 
dualism? Who will deliver me from this dilemma? Who will get me out of this constant battle? Is there hope? And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is hope. It's not the way the Christian life was meant to be lived in this constant struggle. You can get rid of the load. You can get rid of the burden in Jesus Christ. But you've got to break the habits of trying to attain Christ-like character by keeping the law and trying to attain Christ-like character by relying on your best resources. Those habits have got to be broken. Some of the old divines and and, and writers of the deeper life call this the dark night of the soul or the path of the cross or whatever you want to apply to it. But it's that experience in your life as you're moving along with God and He's bringing you to the end of yourself. And you have to come to the end of yourself. Because when you are utterly convinced by God Himself that there is nothing good in me, and I can't, if, if it's up to me, I am an utter catastrophe. Then you will rely on the Holy Spirit. Then you can rely on His power when you know you can't do it. And friends, we have to come to that place. We have to meet God at Peniel. We have to have that experience where we allow God to break our confidence in ourselves. When you come out of that, a number of things happen. You find it easier to love people because you know we're all in the same shape. You find it very hard to judge people because you know we're all in the same shape. You may not have the same sins I've got, but you know what? We've both got a passel. That southern talk for a lot. We both have a pile of them. There's no point in being critical or judgmental or because we're all sinners. We're all sinners. But the other thing is when you're firmly convinced of that, when you're confronted with a challenge, rather than saying, I've got to try real hard now, you say, no point in me trying. I've got to run to Jesus. I've got to run for help. I've got to look to him. When Paul says in Corinthians, there is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. And with every temptation, God will make a way of escape that you can endure it. I've said before, you know what that way of escape is? It's a hole in the ceiling of the box that the devil has got you in that looks right up to Jesus Christ and says, I can't get out of this, but you can. You are my hope. You know, in one sense, the Christian life, walking by the Spirit, is like almost going back to Eden. You know how many rules there were in Eden? There was only one, wasn't there? There was there, Everything in this garden is yours. Everything is yours. There's one tree over here. Just don't eat its fruit. You know? Didn't, God didn't say don't touch it. Eve added that. All God said was don't eat its fruit. It was, it was not hard. You had to make a choice. You could bump the tree raking it, get raking around it, you know. You could, you could touch the leaves, you, but you don't have to put the fruit in your mouth. There was only just one thing they had to remember. 
And in a sense, the Christian life in the Spirit brings us back to just one thing. And that simple thing is, when the Holy Spirit speaks to you, you only have one decision to make. Yes, Lord, or no. That's the only choice. The Holy Spirit will lead you. He will teach you. He will instruct you. He will lead you in the Word. He will lead you in prayer. He will develop your spiritual walk with God. He will instruct you in the way in which you should go. He is faithful like that. He will take care of you. When you stumble, you will not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds you with his hand. In every respect, God is faithful to lead you along. And whenever you stray from the path, you will hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right or the left, you will hear that word saying, this is the way. The Holy Spirit of God will guide you. The only thing you have to remember is when he prompts you to do something, Lord, I am willing. Yes. Please do it through me. And when he tells you not to do something, yes, Lord, please resist it through me. That's all you have to remember. You don't have to remember anything else. That leaves you amazingly free to just love the Lord. It leaves you amazingly free to love other people. It leaves you amazingly free to walk with your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible never tells us that we're to get all hung up in this business of sin and righteousness and and all that kind of stuff, that this is to be our occupation. Like we've got to study holiness so we can be so good. The, The Bible never says that. The Bible says, set your mind on things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Don't get hung up on this stuff. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. And when temptation comes, cry for help. And when the Holy Spirit brings conviction in your life, agree with him. And when he prompts you to do something, follow him. He provides all the energy. He provides all the resources. He provides all the power. He even provides the guidance and the leadership. The only thing he asks you to do is go along. Yes, Lord. Yes. If you say no, you're back on your own resources. You're in trouble. You're going to fail. There's no way to win. You don't have any strength in your flesh. And you never will. That's what many believers have such a hard time getting. And they went, oh, I'm a Christian. I don't have the power to keep the law. No, you don't have the power to keep the law. Not in yourself. You never will. You're going to have the same failure now you had before. There's no strength in you. But I have Jesus now. And I have his spirit living in me. The spirit of power. The spirit of holiness. The spirit of life. The spirit of love. The the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ living in me. All I have to do is let Him do what He wants to do. I only have one choice. Yes, Lord. Or no. And really, I don't have to remember anything else. I know that's going to scare some of you. But I really don't. The Holy Spirit can remember for me. He will bring it to mind. 
He will lead me to the Word. He will lead me to memorize. Last week, I'm sure some of you got frustrated because I was being a little bit critical of the navigators, and I'm, I'm really not criticizing the navigators, just the methodology. But anyway, which, never mind. I better leave that unsaid. Um, but can I tell you the best way to memorize Scripture? Can I tell you the very best way to memorize Scripture? You say, I'm, I'm 75 years old and I can't memorize anything. Now, let me tell you the best way to memorize Scripture. Allow the Holy Spirit to lead you to it. Allow Him to lead you in it. As He gives you delight in the Word, and, and you read it over, and you read it, and you think about it, and you begin to meditate on what He's given you, and you think, gosh, I wonder what that said, I can't remember. You go back and you read it again, and you read it again, and you read it again, and one day, it's there. It's just there. Because you have followed him into the word and he has built it into your heart and now it's flowing out of your life all by his power. He will bring to your mind what you need when you need it. Think, think with me. Just be logical. I'm almost done here. Just be logical for a moment with me. Okay? If you come to Jesus Christ as a brand new Christian and you want to make sure you don't mess up. So you want to get all the rules down. What's the best way to do that? I, I mean, let's take the Holy Spirit out of the equation for a moment. You've come to Christ, you're a brand new Christian, and, and, you, and you do not want to mess up from this day forward. I want to get it all right. My advice to you would be, sit right down here, after you pray the sinner's prayer, and read this book through about... 15 or 20 times. Don't, don't leave. Do not go anywhere. Read it all. Because you could miss a verse. It's real important. That could be the very temptation you face the next day. You could miss it. So make sure you get it all. Do you see the problem? Or... You could turn your life over to the Holy Spirit of God, and if you've never read the verse, listen to me, if you've never read it, he will tell you what to do. I will write my law on your heart. And you'll be going along, and the Holy Spirit will bring you under conviction of something. And you'll say, yes, Lord. I, I won't do that. Yes, Lord. And then one day you'll be reading the Bible just kind of because he's leading you in the Word and, and, and your hunger for the Scripture is alive in Christ and, and you're reading the Word and, and you read something and it's like, whoa, he already told me that. And here it is, right here. That's, that's why I'm not supposed to do that. Bing. He will do that. I'm not telling you you don't have to read the Scripture. I'm not telling you you don't have to pray. I'm not telling you you don't have to memorize. I'm just telling you a different way to go about it. Follow Jesus. Keep your eyes on Him. Turn yourself over to the Holy Spirit. Let Him lead you. And I don't care what your problem is. The Holy Spirit of God is capable and faithful and powerful to lead you in the ways of Christ. 
He is faithful. You can trust him. He will do it. As long as we try to be godly through our efforts, we will fail and we will have Paul's experience in the end of Romans 7. But there's a glorious life coming. Starts in Romans 8, but he gives us a hint right in verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. There is a way out of this dilemma. And there is a plan. And we're about to learn it. It's coming up next. Father, thank you for your word. Just make it real to our hearts. And this morning, Lord, as we have given ourselves to you, oh Lord, we have a lot to learn, but you're a faithful teacher. We want to yield to your Spirit, to be led of the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, and to know that you will be faithful to guide us in all the truth. We can trust you. You have been made, Lord Jesus, unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification. You have been made that to us. Holy Spirit, your role in my life is to reproduce the life of Jesus in me. And you want that. For me, I can trust you. You are faithful. This morning, I want to let you do it. I want to let you be my righteousness. I want to let you be my patience. I want to let you be the the guardian of my tongue and the speaker through my lips. I want you to live through me. For I have been crucified with Christ. But I'm standing here this morning. But it's not me. It's Jesus Christ who's living in me. And the life that I now live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up on my behalf. Thank you for the promise of a Spirit-filled life. In Jesus' name, amen.